If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them this morning with me to the book of Micah. The book of Micah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. We're five more books in from where we were last week in our study of the Minor Prophets. Uh, which is what we're doing this Advent season, uh, looking at Jesus, the promise that was given for generations upon generations and was fulfilled in Bethlehem. I'm guessing, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you probably haven't been reading Micah this week in your personal devotions. Maybe you haven't read Micah this year in your reading of God's Word. But for those of you who grew up in the church, there are a couple passages from Micah, though you might be unfamiliar with it, there are a couple passages that will ring a little bell in your ear. One is Micah 6, verse 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The other one, I suspect, is found right here this morning in this passage that I'm about to read to you, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through the beginning part of verse 5. Uh, Listen as I read. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5a. The prophet says this, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. I'm going to begin this morning with a little geography quiz. How many of you ever heard or know where Milan, Ohio is? How about Hodgenville, Illinois? Does that ring any bells for anyone? What about, maybe, uh, maybe Rena knows where this is, Mavezo, South Africa. No. How about Rand, West Virginia? Nobody ever been to Rand. Okay. Even in our information age, we could find these places on a map, of course. But we wouldn't know or probably care anything about these places if it weren't for the individuals who came out of them. The individuals who came out of them and did something extraordinary. You see, it was Thomas Edison who put Milan, Ohio on the map. It was Abraham Lincoln 
that gave Hodgenville, Illinois its pride. And Nelson Mandela is the only reason why anyone knows about Mavezo, this small town on the eastern cape of South Africa with 810 residents. Chris Sledge may know why Rand is famous. Any guesses, Chris? Our resident sports expert fails. <laughs> Rand is the home of Randy Moss, famous NFL wide receiver and Hall of Famer. Of course, you know where I'm going with all of this based on the passage that I just read. Today in this brief passage, we are reminded of another small town that is forever etched in human history. But here's my question for us as we read a very familiar passage. It Could it be that this town teaches us something about how God works? About who He is? It's God's Word after all. I think it does. Before we get there, I want to, just like last week, I want to get our bearings a bit. Micah is a prophet. He's a prophet of the Lord, just like Hosea last week. He's called to speak to God's people. But prophets were not men who primarily spoke about the future. Uh, prophets, we need to think about them as, as lawyers, as covenant lawyers, as prosecuting attorneys. This was the role of the Old Testament prophet. You see, Yahweh had entered into a covenant with the people of Israel, a covenant relationship with, with obligations, with blessings for obedience, with curses in the face of disobedience. And so Micah, like many of his contemporaries, speaks God's lawsuit against his people, a people who have refused to remember and embrace who he is. And what he asks of them as those who are his. And so, for this people here who first heard these words, judgment is coming. Covenant curses are coming. Their rebellion against the Lord must be dealt with. Now we've skipped a lot in this book, I realize that, but you can see evidence of it in verse 1. Verse 1 starts off, muster your troops. There's something coming against them. There's an attack that's on their doorsteps. They need to muster up their defenses, but they will be unable to stop what's coming because God will allow their enemy to overtake them. But just like last week, That's not the end of the story. Praise God, it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story because of the first word in verse 2. But. In the face of bad news, that one small conjunction can change everything, can bring hope, and indeed it does that very thing. Amidst all the oracles, amidst all the consequences that are to come, lies this chapter, these verses, chapter 5, the account of a mysterious ruler that is to come. But this ruler does not hail from Rome. He does not hail from Jerusalem. He does not hail from the places of power and prestige and influence. No, he comes from a small town that hardly anyone's heard about, Bethlehem Epaphra. 
And that leads us to the first truth that we ought not miss in this familiar passage. It's one that I know I need over and over again. One that's ministered to my heart even this week. It's the first of two, and here it is. God loves to use the weak, the seemingly insignificant, to show Himself strong. God loves to use the weak, the seemingly insignificant, to show Himself strong. This is a glorious reality that we see throughout the Bible. And it's one I think is spoken of loud and clear here in Micah chapter 5. Not only the passage itself, but the prophet himself proclaims and embodies this truth. Even the origins of the messenger Micah, this truth is proclaimed. Let me just speak a little bit about Micah. Micah was a contemporary of Hosea that we looked at last week. He's also contemporary of Isaiah. And Micah 1.1, we didn't read that verse, but that's the introduction to his prophecy. It says, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Moresheth. Who had ever heard of Moresheth? Moresheth was this country village set in the foothills of Palestine. It was a town of hardworking farmers, not cultural elites. And it was out of this town that God called a man named Micah to go to the big cities, to go to Jerusalem, to go to Samaria, and to proclaim with authority God's Word. This weak, lowly messenger, this country boy from the hills, is the one who's chosen to proclaim this ruler who will come from another no-name town. It's just like Paul will say in his letters. Jars of clay that hold a treasure within them. And his name actually fits his calling in life. His name means who is like Yahweh. God's people, the nation of Israel, had forgotten the Lord. They had wandered from Him into corruption, into oppression of the poor, even blatant idolatry. And they're about to be reminded that there is no one like the Lord. This, like most of the prophetic writings that we have in the Scriptures, it's a hard book. It's a hard book to read. Almost the entire book is full of judgment. Chapter 1, Micah speaks of the Assyrians. Those are the enemies that the troops need to be mustered against who will shortly invade. Chapter 4, he speaks of the coming captivity of Judah to Babylon. And yet, mingled throughout these pronouncements of judgment are oracles of hope, promises of restoration. God has not forgotten His people, but to the contrary, like we were reminded of last week, He is their pursuing lover. And here in chapter 5 is where the greatest promise of the book lies. The greatest display of strength that God will give to His people. He'll show His strength in the judgment that He brings against them. But He'll show His strength even more through the One who is to come from Bethlehem. The strength that comes from weakness. 
Now, the city of Bethlehem had a rich family history. Boaz was from here. David was crowned king here. But it was no Jerusalem. It was no Rome. And this ruler was no ordinary king. And that's what makes Bethlehem so beautiful. God is about to show his strength through weakness. The prophets call God's people to look not to the hills of Jerusalem, not to the places of power, but to a place so small and so insignificant that it was too little to be among the clans of Judah. That's what he writes here. You see, Joshua didn't even bother putting Bethlehem on the list of cities and towns that were allotted to Judah in Joshua 15. It was part of them, but it wasn't important enough even to list. So why does God do all of this? Well, I think at least two reasons why. First of all, to give us a hint about what kind of king this will be. And that's what we're going to look at in just a moment in point number two. But secondly, I think God gives us this to give us an indication of what kind of kingdom this will be. What the citizens of this kingdom will be like. How it will come in the world. How it will be lived out in the world. You see, He is not looking for greatness. He is not looking for confidence. He's looking for willingness. He's looking for obedience. He's looking for humble servants who are ready to be used. And we could trace this thread all throughout the Scriptures. David, the smallest of the brothers. Micah, the country boy called to the city. Mary, the most ordinary of teenagers. As one preacher I heard once powerfully wrote, if Jesus could be born in Bethlehem, then maybe He could be born in me. And indeed, He can. You don't have to be extraordinary. You don't have to have it all together. God wants to use you to show Himself glorious through you. This is His character and this is the good news. To those who might feel weak and insignificant. Do you ever feel that way? I do. It's a reminder that His promises aren't for the put together or the polished. They're for the worn, the weary the needy, the humble? Do you feel weak to to be, to do what He's called you to be and to do? I do. That's different for all of us. Maybe it's parenting teenagers that are difficult. Adult children that have wandered. Parents. Parenting parents, some of us. Maybe it's your Gospel witness Loving your neighbors. Even us as a corporate body, even Ascension Presbyterian Church. I mean, we're just a little tiny church in the center of this ungodly culture. What could the Lord do through us? Bethlehem reminds us that God loves to show Himself strong through the weak, 
through the willing. And that's the first promise from this simple prophecy, from this simple declaration. But there's another one getting more specific about what Micah is talking about, and it's this. Jesus is the shepherd king who came for the weak. To those who feel weak and insignificant, Jesus is the shepherd king who came and comes for the weak. This is what the people of Micah's day needed to hear and be reminded of. This is what we need to hear. This is the message of Christmas. God's people in Micah are a mess. They need saving. We are a mess. We need saving. We might give an air of of strength, of confidence, of having it all together, but we, just like God's people of old, we need help. What is proclaimed here is the storyline of the soul. It's written in all the stories that we love. Things are bad in Camelot. Why? Because King Arthur is gone. Robin Hood is needed. Why? Because Richard the Lionheart is gone. And his brother John abuses the throne. Narnia longs for a king to stop the power of the white witch. What will do it? Only Aslan, who needs to return. And the people of Middle-earth waited and waited for the return of the king. You see, the world knows. We know in our soul of souls. We know that we need a king. That things aren't as they should be. That we aren't as we should be. But in our arrogance, in our pride, we try to fix ourselves with education, with, with science, with enlightenment. But we know those things aren't going to work. We need to acknowledge our need for and the coming of our shepherd king. You see, we have our own we being the church, we being New Testament believers, we have our own conjunction. Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the powers, excuse me, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Jumping down to verse 4. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You see, Micah's prophecy here is clearly overshooting anyone that would come in his lifetime. The ruler from the lineage of David finds his origins in eternity it says. Verse 2, He is the future King who has always been. His origin is from old, from ancient of days. This can be only Jesus. And the prophet says, and He comes for me. Who is the me? It is, it is God. This is God's servant who has come to do His will, who has come to do His pleasure. This is Jesus. The One who was born in obscurity but came to rule the world. And the images that Micah gives even of Jesus' rule are so beautiful. He is the standing shepherd in verse 4. He stands in, in vigilance. 
He doesn't slumber, nor does he sleep. To quote the psalmist of Psalm 121. Jesus, of course, takes this imagery of the shepherd upon himself. Jesus is the shepherd who knows his sheep, who feeds his sheep in greed pastures, who leads them beside still waters, who guards them with his rod and his staff. And in Micah's time, the leaders were one of the things that had specifically failed the people of God and their faithfulness to Yahweh. Chapter 3 speaks of the prophets who cry peace, but only bring war. The priests who in their greed teach for a price. The rulers who are unjust. This was the landscape of Micah's day. But Micah speaks of one who will come, who will be the prophet, the priest, the king that we've always needed. So one day, a day will come according to chapter 4, verse 3, when swords will become plows, when spears will become pruning hooks. No more Middle Eastern conflict. No more bloodshed in Eastern Europe. No more terror in our schools or on our streets. Because Jesus has come and Jesus will come again. Sin will be vanquished and His church will dwell secure. That's the good news of Micah 5. That's the good news of Advent. Jesus has come and He is coming again. And until then, our world, you'll walk into Target and you'll hear songs of peace in the carols of our season. And some might even taste a a, a little bit of that peace through time off of work, through family gatherings that are sweet. But unless the ruler that is spoken of here is acknowledged, there will be no real peace, no true peace, no lasting peace. Jesus is the shepherd king who comes for the weak. So how will you respond to this birth? Will you respond in hostility? That's one example we have in the Christmas story. That was Herod's response, wasn't it? I want nothing to do with this king. I'll turn my back on him. If you do that, if you turn your back on him, you might be without him forever. Or maybe you'll respond with indifference. I got other things to do. Just like the activity that was going on, the birth of our Savior, just like the religious leaders that we've been talking about in the book of John, indifference, other things to do. Or we could respond in faith, in adoration, in worship. You know who did that? The shepherds. The shepherds who dropped everything to bow and to see this one who had come for them. They weren't worried about their sweat. They sm- I'm sure they smelled They didn't worry about that. They didn't worry about their work clothes. They didn't worry about their weakness, their inadequacy. 
They would not let that keep them from coming to the One who came to shepherd them. Brothers and sisters, we stand on this promise, on these promises. We live out of these promises. May God show us the way and give us the grace. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this familiar Advent passage that reminds us of who You are, of who You came to be, Lord Jesus. And to we uh, who are needy and weak and inadequate, Father, we thank You for the assurance that You love to use us, that You came for us. And give us the grace, Holy Spirit, to bow in obedience to You. To put aside the lies of our world, the lies of our flesh, the lies of the devil, and to seek You with all that is in us. Not just in this season, the season of Advent, but all our days. Father, take Your Word Plant it deep in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.